Okay, I'm glad you're here. Um, someone was telling me a story uh, just this morning, actually, that they, they had just taken a trip to Israel, and they, they wanted to share with me something that was sort of like uh, kind of interesting to them, which is that, you know, here in, in America, at least, uh, it, when, we, when we pray, we, we're, we face east, and that's in order to face toward uh, Jerusalem. And so, um, and some people, like, the, the word is Mizrach, that means east, and some people even have, like, decorative uh, things that they put in their house that, that say Mizrach on them, and they hang that up, so people know if they're going to pray in the house, like, which direction to, to face and everything like this. Um, but when you actually get to Israel, um, it, it changes around, because if you're, if you're north of Jerusalem, then you would actually face south. Right, and if you're south of Jerusalem, then you would actually face north. So, so it's it, so this person who's like usually accustomed to knowing which way is east, or or having an app on your phone which can you know like a compass which can tell you immediately which direction to face. It's very easy. There, it actually becomes more more complicated. And as soon as he said that, just these words kind of came out of my mouth, which is that um, the closer you get to the source the more direction you need. And he's like, where did you hear that? And I was like, well, I just said it. <laughs> you know, it's just like, he's like, okay. So, so the closer you get to the source, the more direction you need. And um, that, that, that sort of resonated with me. And, and I want to sort of develop that in terms of our approach to life and what, what Torah is actually trying to do. And, and specifically, what what the oral law is um, in, in contrast to the written law. And I'd like to just do a whole kind of overview of that. Some people refer to it as rabbinic Judaism. And um, what, what does that mean exactly? And, and, and so to just try to explain what, what our approach to understanding the world is um, and, uh, and really trying to define what, what, Torah, what makes Torah Judaism Torah Judaism, as opposed to, say, Reform Judaism or Conservative Judaism or Reconstructionist Judaism. Like, what are, what are all these things? And what makes Torah Judaism sort of unique in, in this way? Um, so, so let's, uh, let's go a little bit further. Um, it says in Pirkei Avos that a person can't be a chassid, meaning to say a, a pious person or a, a, a very sort of, um, you know, like, well, pious is probably, probably the best uh, word for now. And remember, when, when they're talking about a chassid, this is going back already, you know, over a thousand, close to 2,000 years ago, before the Hasidic movement. The, the, the word chassid was, was, you know, offered as, as, as a great um, recommendation to, 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 a certain's, to a person's piety. So it says that an ignoramus can't be a chassid, meaning to say that if you, if you really want to scale the heights of spirituality, you need to actually know something. That, that at a certain point, um, uh, sincerity only gets you so far. I mean, imagine, just, just so we can understand this a little more clearly, imagine a caveman at a dinner in the Queen's Palace, right? Now imagine this caveman is the nicest caveman that ever lived, right? And he's got his club, and he's got his loincloth, and he's in 
crusted with dirt and lice, and, but couldn't mean better. And sits down at the table and starts eating with his hands and everything like that. And so, it, this is the idea that in ignoramus, right, just at a certain point they can only climb to a certain level because an education is actually necessary. So let's, let's put this in another context, just to say the same idea another way. Imagine an incredibly sincere person at the um, Institute for Advanced Studies at, at Princeton, right? Who's in a very high-level physics class. And they're incredibly sincere, but they don't know anything about physics, right? So you say, well, wait a second, like, but he's such a nice guy. Like, shouldn't, shouldn't he have come up with a world-changing theorem by now? I mean, this guy saw him, like, you know, feeding the hungry and, you know, clothing the naked, right? So he was helping earthquake victims, right? But no, 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 there's no correlation between sincerity and the ability to climb certain heights. At a certain point, you need an education. So again, to circle back to this initial idea, the closer you get to the source, the more direction you need. Okay? So, so let's, let's take a very kind of um, important idea, uh, which, which this will be based on. You see, a lot of people... Okay, so I'm, I'm, I'm the product of, of, of public schools uh, uh, in the 60s and 70s in, in New York City. And, um, you know, the approach to education, like I always think it's like, was sort of like the teacher hands out a poem to everyone in the class and says, what is this about? And you say, oh, well, I say it's about this. And the teacher says, very good, it's about that. And then someone says, well, I think it's about this, something completely different. And the teacher goes, very, very good. And then a third person says something completely different and says, very, very good. And, and everybody is right. And everybody is right. So, so a lot of people look at the, the world itself and everybody's right because they're coming from this place of sincerity. So everybody's right. But I would suggest, and I think that science enthusiastically endorses this approach, that there's an actual structure to the universe. That if you say, well, you know what? I think a proton is an electron and a neutron is a hot dog. You know, that's kind of where I'm coming from. Very good, very good. No, that, no, it's not very good. It's like wrong, it's actually wrong. Not to insult you, you're great. But what you said is wrong because it's inaccurate. Because we know more about the world than what you're saying. So in other words, I think that we have to begin, and I'm talking about not from a religious standpoint or a point of piety or religiousness or anything like that, but from a point of truth to actually suggest that we can look at the universe and that we can say certain things, that there is a structure to the universe itself. Now, then the next question is, where did that structure come from? Did that structure just sort of like spontaneously appear? You see, 
you know, my question, and and I'm sure you can talk to lots of people. I'm not I'm not talking about um, Darwin or Darwinism at this point. That's not what I'm about to suggest. But but I will suggest this, which is that if all of life, according to this point of view, started with a single cell, my question is, where did that single cell come from? And who created the fabric of time and space for that cell to exist in? From the standpoint of the Big Bang Theory, which, by the way, the Torah sages came up with thousands of years ago. We were on top of that, like way before science even approached that thought. If you start with the idea that the world emanated from a single point of materiality, right, which we do say, by the way, so the question is, where did that point of materiality come from, and where did the fabric of time and space come from for it to exist within, right? So anyone who's like honest or intellectually curious has to then ask themselves, what is the step before that? So, so we say, God is the step before that. And, and, and we say God is one. And that God has an actual plan for the universe. And that God is good. And that the world is evolving toward perfection. That, that's our point of view. So we say that this amazing structure, which is incredibly elaborate, which science is revealing to us all of the time, just how elaborate and how exact and how amazing it is, all of that emanates from a single source. And that source, God, has a plan for all of us, has a plan for the world, has a plan for all of us. So now, now let's return back to this idea that the closer that you get to the source, the more direction you need. Or as Pirkei Avos says it, that a person who is an ignoramus can't become a chassid, meaning can't become holy, meaning to say can't, can't reach certain levels without some type of information in order to scale the heights. So, so now, with all of this in mind, I want to go through sort of a brief history of Judaism and how we got to the place where we're at right now. Because a lot of people, and a lot of very intelligent people who have um, very advanced degrees in, in, in various secular studies, doctors, lawyers, all, all sorts of things, they stumble on this point because they're lacking some very basic information. Not only is some basic information lacking, but there's no insight that that information is lacking. So there's a, there's a, there's a kind of an old joke that I heard that I, that I really like, not, not so much because it's so funny, but because I, I think it illustrates a very um, true point uh, uh, about just, our, our, just, just the way we are. So it goes like this. In, in, in Eastern Europe, back in the day, blintzes were, were considered like a luxury for like really rich people, okay? So a poor man says to his wife, you know, just once in my life I'd like to taste blintzes. So his wife says, look, get the ingredients, I'm, I'm very happy to make blintzes for you. So, so, so he says, great. So she says, you know, go and get some, some sugar 
He said, sugar, do you know how expensive sugar is? I can't afford sugar. And she says, well, get, get, get some cinnamon. Cinnamon, we haven't had cinnamon around these parts in I don't know how long. Well, get some raisins. Raisins, what do you... So, so, so finally she says, well, get some flour and water. Okay, I can get some flour and some water. <laughs> right, so, so she does her best, you know, with like, you know, basically no ingredients to make blintzes for him. And then he takes a bite out of it and he goes, you know, I really don't know what rich people see in blintzes. <laughs> so, so the reason why that, that joke is so resonant to me is because we've got now a couple of generations, whole generations, which is pretty heartbreaking actually, whole generations of Jews, right, people, who have tasted blintzes, quote unquote, thinking that they know what blintzes are, and having what they feel, because they're normal, intelligent people, they feel actually accurate opinions about their experience, and yet they've never tasted blintzes in their entire life. They don't even know what they're talking about. Because they're lacking certain very definite experiences. So, so people say, well, wait a second. Okay, so what's this whole thing, Torah, Judaism, and what's this whole thing that oral law, the written law, like I understand the five books of Moses. That's a book, I can hold it up, I, I get that. Then where'd you come up with all these halachas? Where'd you come up with all these practices? You know what I mean? The rabbis came, and they started like, you know, in their sincerity, coming up with all sorts of practices and extra things and, and all the rest. And how is that really any different from what, say, Reform and Conservative and Reconstructionist Jews are doing? They're also looking into the text, and they're coming up with all sorts of practices, or maybe coming up with ideas not to do all sorts of practices. And, and, and why is one really any more different from the other if both are coming from this standpoint of sincerity? So, so there's a, a certain lacking of information there to, to get to that thought. That thought is a very credible, intelligent-sounding point, but it's coming from a place of complete lack of education. So let's, let's look into it a little bit more and try to develop what the difference is and what Torah Judaism is and why the oral law, or what we say in Hebrew we call the Torah Shabal Peh, what the Torah Shabal Peh is and how essential that is to understanding where we are today. So, so here's, here, here are two pieces of information that are sort of like, when you know this, these are sort of two, you know, like aha moments that, 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 that a lot of people who haven't studied this lack, okay? And these aren't original ideas. This is Jewish history, and this is, this is, this is our tradition that I'm telling you right now. So when, when God gave Moshe and the Jewish people the Torah at Mount Sinai, right? one thing to know is, before we get to the first point, just, just, just one thing to know, just because it's so shocking in its audacity, right, is that the whole nation of Israel was there. So that's approximately, they say, two and a half million people were there when God spoke at Mount Sinai. Now, what's so shocking about that is that if you take the other great sort of monotheistic traditions in the world today, Christianity and Islam, Christianity has a central figure, and he says, I got this information, trust me, right? 
Islam says the same thing. They also have a central figure. And he says, I got this, the word, trust me, right? Now compare that to two and a half million people hearing the word. I mean, it's, there's no comparison whatsoever. And what's, what's even more shocking is the idea that a religion would claim such a thing, which is so easily disprovable, unless in fact it happened. So our tradition is from father and mother to child in a straight, unbroken line from Mount Sinai till today. That, that's our, that's our, that's our Masorah. We, we use the word Masorah. And again, just to put it in a modern context, just how strong that is. You know, it used to be like when I was growing up, like if you'd watch like, um, you know, like lawyer TV shows or things like that, like the, 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 the most amazing piece of evidence is if someone would sort of like run into a courtroom and say, I know that that person is, you know, innocent or guilty, whatever it is, because I have a photo of the person who actually did it at the moment that it was done. But today we know that you have Photoshop and there is no piece of evidence which can't be falsified. And, and so, interestingly, as we get ever more high-tech, the more low-tech the actual Masora is, is just an unbroken chain of parent telling child, eyewitness telling child, right? Like, that is the most compelling thing in the world, which is, that, that's just striking. That's just striking, you know? Because you would think that technology would carry the day. And yet there's no substitute for that unbroken chain of witness to son and daughter to grandchild. I once heard something which I, I think is really interesting, just to put this into more of a compressed kind of time-elapsed type of thing, which is that, you know, we talk about um, once a year we have the, the, the Passover Seder, right? Pesach Seder, Seder night. It's a big night, you know, in families. And it's not uncommon for, for there to be a grandparent at the table and a grandchild or even a great-grandchild at the table. So it's something like, and I don't, I don't know what the, um, what the number is. It's, it's escaping me right now. But it's a shockingly small number if you take the number from the grandparent to the grandchild or the great-grandchild, it's only something like, I don't know, a few dozen satyrs since Mount Sinai. Like you would think, like, you know, you think it's like such a, almost like a mythic event. Like how could that, how can you even make it tangible at all? But here you see it's like, it's just a few rotations of a, of a few satyrs at the table. So it's, it's seen in that context, it's not that long at all, actually. So, so let's get to the first point. The first point is this. What happened at Mount Sinai? So it's not just that God gave Moshe and, and the Jewish people the, the, the Torah, right? Moshe was up there for 40 days. And during that time, God dictated the Torah to Moshe. And he said, okay, write, write this letter, write this letter, spelling out each word, right? And then God said, okay, you wrote the verse. Now I'm going to, don't write this down. Now I'm going to explain to you what that verse means. 
So, in other words, we have God's own interpretation of the verses. Because ultimately, if I have the choice between my interpretation of a verse or your interpretation of a verse in the Torah, what does it really mean? Or even a very holy rabbi's interpretation of the verse or God's own interpretation of the verse, I'm going with God's interpretation of the verse. And I think everyone would agree with that, okay? So that's actually what happened. So the, 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 the best example that I can give, because it's just, you know, it just kind of captures the whole thing, is God says at, at a certain point, um, by the holiday of uh, Sukkot, by Sukkot, right? We take the four species, the Arbaminim, and, um, and we shake them. And there's, you know, one of the things that we hold is the esrik, right? Or in English, the citron. And interestingly, you know, um, the Gomorrah talks about how, you know, because in certain times in different places around the world over, over the last several thousand years, sometimes an esrik is very, very hard slash impossible to get, you know? Um, and sometimes they go for insane amounts of money, you know, because they're so, you know, they're so needed and, and, and sometimes they're in such short supply. Anyway... An esrog looks exactly like a lemon. And the Gomorrah discusses a case where someone got a lemon. And that's where the English expression comes from. <laughs> I got a lemon. Right? Meaning, a, yeah, meaning a counterfeit, this is sort of counterfeit product, you know? So a lot of things can be traced back to the Torah and the times of the Gomorrah and things like this. But anyway, what does the verse say? The verse says that when you, when you take these four species, which includes the esrog, the citron, all it says is the following, very, very vaguely. All it says is, take the fruit from the beautiful tree. Now, if you think about it, take the fruit from the beautiful tree. Nothing could be more vague or subjective than that. Because what do you consider a beautiful tree? Well, cherries, obviously, right? What about you? Apples, come on. You know, now over thousands of years in the four corners of the world, you would imagine when Sukkot comes, Everyone is going to have a different fruit, right? Has to be. It has to be. I mean, because what could be more vague or subjective than take the fruit from the beautiful tree? And yet we know throughout all of history, there's only one fruit that's been taken. And that's this thing which is completely counterintuitive. The citron, the asterisk, really? That's the one that you're picking? And that's the only one that's been in use. And no one, no one contests that. No one can test that. <coughs> Why? Because when God gave the verse to Moshe, God himself explained that the fruit from the beautiful tree is the esrik. All the explanations for all the verses came down with the verses themselves. That's called the oral law. Now, from a teaching standpoint, just understand the beauty of this sort of twin dynamic between the written law and the oral law. You see, because, you know, one of the, like a real insult to say to someone, like, and I'm sure we've all met people like this before, where we say, that guy is like book smart. Meaning to say, he's kind of like a smart idiot. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, he knows a lot and he knows nothing at the same time. Right? Because he's just been reading books and he has no life experience. He doesn't know how to deal with people at all. Right? So, so there's, a, there's a type of learning that you can get out of books, which is hugely helpful, if it's in context. 
And then you have another dimension of learning, which must be done between people. It must be done. It has to be done. So for this reason, these two separate lines of teaching and, and transmission were sort of codified as independent worlds, which had to simultaneously exist. And that's the oral law and the written law. Or in Hebrew, you'll hear it referred to as the Torah Shebek Tzav, that's the five books, right? Or the Torah Shebek Pet, that's the, that's the oral law, right? So now, another thing to, that, that everyone needs to know is, if you start to learn oral law, meaning to say Talmud, and we'll get into that in a moment, Talmud, all sorts of things like this, Gomorrah, you see it's way complicated. It's hugely complicated. And a person can have a thought. I certainly have this thought. How did people ever keep all of that in their head? I mean, it's, it's not, it, it, it doesn't make any sense. I don't care how smart you are. You, you're going to keep that entire superstructure in your head? I, I don't get it, you know? And the answer was, it was never completely kept in anyone's head that the oral law was written down. People took copious notes on it, and they were supposed to, and that was a good thing, and they all existed. However, you weren't allowed to codify it and publish it. See, that, that's a very essential distinction. So in other words, all of these things were kept track of in great detail, but they were never codified or published, and that way, in notes form, they maintain their status of the oral law. You get it? Okay. So now comes along uh, just the, the rigors of the Roman exile. And the Romans were like Nazis. They, they were like really horrible times. And they really tried to systematically, they didn't try to, they systematically killed rabbis, anyone who teached, taught. It was, it was completely against the law. It was an executionable offense to teach Torah. And they routed out and killed, you know, I mean, even Rabbi Akiva, right? So, like, they, they were very, you know, horrible. And Yehuda Hanasi, also known as Rebbe, right, was the leader of the Jewish people. And he saw that the oral law, because of, like, just the rigors of the exile, was being lost. So he does something super radical. He goes and he writes down the oral law. And he, and this was called, and now there was a commandment not to do that. But what he did was, he said, I have to break the Torah in order to save the Torah. Hmm. Right? So that in itself is like amazing, right? And, and that's something that really like the, the, the top, 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 can't emphasize this enough, top leaders of the Jewish people have an insight of when to do. But if someone's just walking by McDonald's <laughs> and saying, I have to break the Torah in order to keep the Torah, nine cheeseburgers, please, right? That would not be a proper application of this. <laughs> so so, so now, now what he does is, he does something super ingenious. He codifies the oral law in a super terse, concise way. And, he, and this is called the Mishnah, right? Now, there's certain ones that become codified that don't get included in this body of work that he calls the Mishnah. Those are called Brises, okay? But that's already getting a little technical. 
Just keep in mind the word Mishnah, okay? Now, what was so amazing about the way he redacted it, right, the, the, the way he wrote it down, is that you can't learn it. It's so, um, it's so compacted that you can't learn it unless you actually discuss it with another person what's going on with it. You have to sort of like unpack it. You have to like draw out what's going on in the Mishnah. So now understand the genius of this. He was able to, in this way, preserve the oral nature of the oral law while writing it down and still preserving it and saving it from being forgotten. Do you understand? Now, just, I'll tell you a story just because I always kind of like this connection, way of explaining it. Um, in, in recent American history, um, canned food and uh, powdered cakes, right? Like Betty Crocker, that kind of thing, Duncan Hines, right? They didn't catch on with American housewives, right? They were like initially a very big flop because there was something seen as like to a, a woman who is like running the household that to take like just to make a cake out of it, just like you pour something in a bowl and then you like there, there was something like like just that, that undermined who they were and what they were accomplishing about that. You know, it was like sort of like cheating in, the, in like the worst way. Like, just it just like was uprooting their sense of what it means to be a mother and like really providing, right? So then the people in the corporate offices came up with this like genius idea, right? They said, "Look, you, you, you they have powdered eggs. You don't need to crack an egg in the Duncan Hines cake. All you need to do is pour in some water, and that's it." But they had this great idea. They told you, "Crack an egg." And when you crack the egg, then you felt like, oh, now I'm making the cake. <laughs> so it, it got you involved in the process in a meaningful way, in a meaningful way, and now this was your cake. So Yehuda Hanasi wrote down the Mishnah in such a way that you couldn't understand it. It was still written down, but you couldn't understand it unless you discussed it. You had to put in your own effort and then it still remained the oral law. Okay. But there was a problem. It's not really a problem, but we're just taking you through the stages of Jewish history right now. So what was the problem? The problem was it was so concise. It's like, come on, give us a break. We need a little bit more. We need a little bit more. So then the Mishnah gave birth to what's called the Gomorrah. So what's the Gomorrah? The Gomorrah is the explanation and the fleshing out of the Mishnah. And now you have certain things like um, the rabbis of the time, right? Who you, the, the Tanaim, the Amarayim, right? What we call Chazal. They were telling, for instance, like true life stories about their own lives in order to illustrate and flesh out points in the halacha. So people who like ask a question, like they want to be, you know, they want to know. They, they're saying, okay, so you're telling me that that story in the, in the Talmud and everything like that, that was given to Moshe at Mount Sinai, right? That, that's sort of like missing what the historical dynamic is. The rabbis in the Gomorrah are trying to explain the Mishnah to us and to flesh it out. And then we'll use current events and real life events in order to explain what's happening. Okay.
So, so eventually that gets published. And this project of writing down the Mishnah and then fleshing it out further with the Gomorrah, that together is called the Talmud. That's what the Talmud is, okay? Now, now the Talmud took about, you ready for this? About 500 years to write down. Like, to give you just like a, a, just a moment of appreciation of who the Jewish people are. Right? Have you ever heard of a book that took 500 years to write? And can you even conceive of something that took 500 years to write down? I mean, it's, it's wild. It's wild. Now, the thing is, is that it's never stopped. This is the key point. This is key point number two, and hopefully I'll remember what key point number three is. You know what? I better go to key point number three first. Because <laughs> I know I'm going to forget. I've already forgotten twice. Um, I believe that it's um, Rabbi Hirsch who, who made this point initially. So now let's, now that we have an appreciation of what the Talmud is, what the oral law is, and what it is in comparison to the written law, and how Moshe got both at the same time at Mount Sinai. God gave Moses the verses, and then God explained what the verses meant. Right? Let's, let's now talk about the relative size, in terms of pages, of the written law versus the oral law. Okay? So, the, the, the five books, this is actually more than the five books. You know, I'm holding a, a chumash in my hand right now. So, so this also includes... Haftorahs, things from the prophets, and it also includes things from Ksuvim, right? Like Megillah and, and Eicha and all sorts of Shirashim, all sorts of things like that. And lots of commentary. So it's pretty small, in other words. This is the, the, the five books is, is short, it's small, right? Um, the Talmud, on the other hand, if you learn one page a day, it takes you seven years to get through. So the Talmud is, is massive, actually. It's massive. So, so now this is now a second, what I would call aha type moment, okay? Which is that imagine here. So here's the metaphor that I, I believe it's Rabbi Hirsch gives us. Imagine there's a um, a professor and a student. The professor is giving a lecture, right? The student is taking notes at the lecture. Now, when the lecture is over. What percentage of the student's notes compares to the number of words said by the professor? It's a small percentage, right? It's just notes. That's the relationship between the written law and the oral law. The written law, meaning the five books, are just the notes from, quote-unquote, the lecturer, God himself's explanation of his vision for the entire world. We, we talked about the world being very structured. God structured the world. God is giving over the structure of the universe. We say that the world is actually made out of the Torah, right? So God is explaining how everything fits together and how we can access all the different points of reality through the mitzvot. That's a very lengthy explanation. And that's the oral law. So the Talmud, by necessity, since that's the oral law, those are the Rebbe's words, so to speak. Those are God's words, so to speak. Explanations, right? Fleshed out by the rabbis, right? Would have to be way longer 
and is appropriately much longer than the written text itself. Now we have a way of contextualizing it, right? Now here's the next step. The next step is that even though the Talmud was published, right? It took 500 years to get it all down, but even though it was published, don't confuse that with the end of the oral law. The oral law is an ongoing experience to this day that has never stopped. And it certainly didn't stop with the publishing of the Talmud. In other words, how we're applying the laws that we received at Mount Sinai and the teachings that we received at Mount Sinai, especially as society is constantly changing, constantly involves us to explain how to position these laws and these mitzvot and how to observe them given the challenges of the day. And how do we figure out how to apply the mitzvot according to the challenges of the day? We look into all of the work that all of the previous rabbis gave us up until this moment and apply it to the present day. We don't start from scratch and say, you know what would be a great idea? No, everything is being done. I'll give you one example. I'll give you one example. Hopefully I'll be able to say this accurately. We, there are certain laws about grafting fruit, okay? So for instance, um, so what does it mean to graft fruit? So you would take, let's say, a, uh, from a, um, I don't know, let's say a, uh, an orange tree, right? What, what is a nectarine? What's a nectarine? It's a plum and a peach. It's a plum and a peach? Is that right? All right, so let's, let's, say, that, let's say it's a plum and a peach. So you take a, a, a branch from a plum tree, right? You cut it off and you graft it onto a peach tree. Right, if if that's the if that's the DNA of it, and then what comes out is a new species. It's not a plum and it's not a peach. It's a nectarine. Okay, so there's certain laws that regulate whether you're able to do this and what circumstances. Maybe you can't do it, but if someone's already done it, maybe then you can still eat from the fruit, which I think is is the uh, is the halacha, if I'm not mistaken. So. So, so now, what about um, surrogate births today? Who ever heard of, like, taking eggs and putting them into someone else? Right? Like, is that allowed by the Torah? Well, now you could say, well, you know, the couple wants to have kids. Give them a break. <laughs> you know, we've got the technology. Let's, let's just say yes. We're pro-family, let's just say yes. But that's not how it happens. What it happens is, is that they look through the whole history of halacha, and they say, where certainly the Torah that was given at Mount Sinai has every piece of information that's ever going to be needed, ever. So where do we see how we're supposed to respond to this? So there are certain opinions, halachic opinions, that are given today about surrogacy, right? which are learned out from these cases from grafting from a tree, right? And, 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 and you know, it's done, so, you know, it, it seems to be according to the Torah, so there doesn't seem to be an issue with it. But it, it's, it's obviously much more complicated than that. I haven't studied it in detail. But what I'm trying to offer you is an example how 
the development of the oral law didn't end with the Talmud, and it continues to this day. And the way that we address the new situations that arise in terms of technology and all of the rest is to go through the cases in the Gomorrah and to see where we can base our present-day opinion upon it. And this is an unbroken chain. This has never stopped. And the great people of our day have something called Das Torah. People who completely immerse themselves within Torah are given what's called Siyate De Shemaya, divine help, in order to be able to understand the continuous flow of these ideas so that they're not sort of starting from scratch or making things up, but they're rooted into this flow from Mount Sinai. Now, how do you contrast this with, say, what Reform Judaism is doing? Right? How is it different? Because, again, one could be very tempted to say, well, look, the rabbis are looking into the text. They're saying their thing. You know, so, so these rabbis are also looking into the text and they're saying their own thing. Right? Or, there, or why would one, one thing be more... Um, why would one thing be more legitimate than, than another thing? So, so I was talking about this with someone the other day, and, and they, 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 they came up with a phrase that I thought was very evocative. They said, one is evolution, the other is revolution. In other words, one is understanding that there's a continuous stream, and we're working all within the same paradigm in order to address the current situation. The other is starting from a place which is uprooting premises. So I'll give you an example of that, of uprooting a premise. So it says in the Torah, very clearly, no one disagrees with this at all. It says in the Torah, first of all, it says in the Torah that you can't um, add to the mitzvahs and you can't take away from the mitzvahs. And we'll address that point in a second. You'll say, well, aren't the rabbis adding to the mitzvahs? We'll get, we'll get to that in a moment. So, so uh, the answer is... Yes and no. More meaningfully, no. While we're at the point, let's just finish it. <laughs> so, you see, a lot, of people, a lot of people say, well, you know, especially when people first start out in terms of their observance, they, they, they're like, you know, you know I, I, I joke around, but it's, it's not really a joke. It's sort of like people go to someone's house for Shabbos, they have some, you know, this Shabbos experience. They have some chicken soup. They, they dig it, you know. They're like, wow, you know, I want more of this. This is like a beautiful way to go through life. And then they find out there's 613 mitzvot. And they're like, what are you doing to me? You know, you're killing me. You know, what is this, you know? And it's sort of like, I just kind of wanted some warmth, you know. It's like, I don't want to get buried, you know. So... And then they start getting like real particular, like, is that, is that written in the Torah? Is that from the rabbis? You know, you know, like, you know, they get like all of a sudden they're scholars, you know? So, so, so what are these, what we call dirabunans? In other words, these are mitzvot that we learn from the rabbis. So the one thing that you have to understand is, is that, that the rabbis are not control freaks. You know, even though it seems like they're complicating our lives by, by um, seemingly adding mitzvot, what they're doing is they're putting up a fence around the Torah so that we don't break the Torah. Let me put that in another way. 
the Dirabunans are for people who actually want to keep the Torah. In other words, if you want to observe, if you want to keep the mitzvah, the rabbis observe at certain points, you know something? To the person who actually wants to keep this mitzvah, they're going to run into this problem and they're going to run into this problem. You know what we're going to do? We're going to pave a straight path to the mitzvah for them. We're going to tell them, don't go in this direction and don't go in that direction. Go in this direction and you're going to hit the mitzvah directly. Right? So the fences are fencing out the various wrong turns that a person can make and allowing a person to hit the mitzvah directly. Okay? They're not fences in the sense of, now I have handcuffs around me and my life is ruined. That's like not what's going on in terms of dirabundance, what the rabbis are doing. Let me give you another way of visualizing it. That the, if you think of the mitzvah is like almost like a fruit or whatever it is, the, the rabbis with the dirabundance, with the rabbinic laws, are allowing that fruit to blossom in its fullest way so that you can actually access the fruit itself. In other words, it's not a separate idea, an independent idea, which is being grafted onto it. It's something that's sort of bringing out the mitzvah itself and making it more available to people, right? Mm -hmm. Who want to do it, who actually want to do it. It's not to further complicate people's lives who don't want to do it. That's not the point of what the derabundans are, okay? So, so... So now let's get back to this idea of, of reform now, of evolution versus revolution, right? So, so all of the development that's gone on in terms of um, the explanations of the mitzvahs and, and things like this, right? Um, all of this is working within certain premises. Like, for instance, that God himself gave us the Torah, that what the Torah says is immutable. When it says that this Torah is forever and don't add to the mitzvahs and don't subtract from the mitzvahs. And now hopefully we have a better appreciation that the rabbis are not adding to the mitzvahs, but rather they're protecting the mitzvahs and making the mitzvahs more accessible, right? So, so when the reform come and say, of course you can eat pork. What are you, crazy? You think you can't eat pork? Of course you can eat pork. And let me tell you why you can eat pork. Because the whole reason why they told you you can't eat pork is because there was something called trigonosis. And trigonosis was this horrible disease, but thank God we're so way past that. We don't have trigonosis anymore in a meaningful way. Or if we do, you know, we'll give you some medicine, you'll get over it. So, so you know, baking it up. Now... That is actually, that's, that's a gutting of the mitzvah. That's a gutting of the premise of the Torah. That is not an evolution of the Torah. That is, that is an uprooting of the Torah. Now, another thing to understand is the words, and I, I really don't like the word orthodox, as in orthodox Judaism, because if you learn Torah, like authentic Torah, it's the most wildly creative, incredibly deep, incredibly loving, amazing, revolutionary ideology around. Period end. Period end. And the idea of somehow saddling this body of 
thought, this, this, this way of living your life with the word orthodox, which, which suggests being parochial and narrow-minded and, and, and spiteful and like idiotic, you know? It's like, you know, like for instance, people who think orthodoxy means fundamentalism. What is fundamentalism? It says, you know, this is what it says, an eye for an eye. So an eye for an eye means that if you poked out my eye, I poke out your eye. And now I'm, a, like, um, now I'm a holy man because I'm following the word of the Torah. The Talmud, God's, again, God's own explanation of what an eye for an eye means, it means workman's compensation. That means that if someone is a, a, you know, a menial laborer, right, and they earn um, a certain salary, Right, and they lose an eye, and that impairs their ability to do to do that job. You you pay them a certain amount to compensate whatever their wages would have been. If someone is a brain surgeon and they lose an eye, then they're entitled to more compensation. So so what's so arresting to me about that is that here you have something which is like incredibly like like that's that's so progressive. That's so progressive. And this is something that we had before the rest of the world had in terms of workman's compensation. And yet, that's our understanding of something which the outside world holds up as the hallmark of the primitivism of the Torah itself. An eye for an eye. Like, what could be more vengeful and, and you, know, you know, contrary to social progress? You know, but we never interpreted that first that way. Ever. So, so, what's Again, to return to the point, orthodoxy is not fundamentalist in the way that it's understood in contemporary society at all. Because we have the oral law which is explaining what the, what the verses actually mean. And the amazing thing is, is that only the Jewish people have the oral law. You know, other people have the Bible, but they don't have God's explanation of the Bible. And so, as a result, the, the Torah gets misunderstood and misinterpreted by, by all sorts of places. You know, one of, the, one of the very interesting things is that the first translation of the Torah was called the Septuagint. That was, um, it was translated into Greek for the first time, right? And to this day, to this day, if you observe the fast days in the calendar, it's the 10th of the month of Tevis, right? One of the reasons, if you look, that we fast to this day is because the Torah was ever translated into a foreign language. Why? Because they compared putting a, li- to putting a lion into a cage. Because every, listen carefully, every... Yeah, so, um, you know, in the, uh, the Gomorrah, they're essentially like arguing over a concept. Um, how do you know what the truth is when the truth is... is determined by the majority opinion, you know, like, how do you know, like, what is truth and what is, like, ego, like, within the Gomorrah, within, like, Right, so we say, so that. when they're debating, we're, we, we say, elu ve'elu divri um, elokim, um, meaning to say, these and these are both the words of the living God, right? And then in terms of what the practical halacha is, then you have to go further. Because, like I said, the Talmud, the oral law didn't end with the, with the codification of the Talmud then that was just the publishing of, okay, we're up to here, okay, let's just publish that, put it on the internet, you know, just put it out, let's keep on learning. 
so the learning never stopped. And then they start to define, okay, but which, which practice do we actually pick? Right? That was like the amazing breakthrough of starting with the tour, right? And then, um, or maybe even the rush. And then comes the tour, and then comes the Shulchan Aruch, where they start to codify the various opinions and actually publish something like a, a Shulchan Aruch. Right? That's sort of like, okay, this is what we're going to do. But when they say this is what we're going to do, it's, it doesn't mean that the, the other opinion was wrong. In fact, if you study halacha, yeah. and I study some halacha, then what, what they're constantly doing is when they pick a road, and they'll say, we're going to go down this road, they're, they're being choshesh is, is, is the word that they use. They're being mindful of all the other opinions that they're not going by. And they're making sure to incorporate those as much as possible. So that to the extent that you have to pick one direction, but, at a, in, but with respect to all the other directions simultaneously. And these are, and then that becomes a psak. Psak means what you actually do. But psak is very interesting because it also means end. Because it's sort of like, okay, we're ending it right here, but then the discussion still continues, you know? So anyway, um, you know, I once heard, uh, some people have like this experience where they're learning, uh, say, Gomorrah, some, some Gomorrah, and it's sort of like, they're, they're saying, well, which, what's the halacha? Like, what, what are we supposed to do? So they offer this opinion. Then someone offers this opinion. Then someone offers this opinion. Then they argue it all different ways. And then two pages later, they say, okay, this is the right answer. So people say, well, why did you publish the entire discussion? Leave out the discussion. Just tell us what's the answer, right? You could have you saved us, uh, you know, weeks, right? So I heard Rabbi Green say something very beautiful. Imagine, like, when you're making art, Right? Like, let's say you, you could just, like, take a photograph of a, of a bench, like a park bench. Okay, that's... You say, well, what do I want to do? I want to I make a picture of a bench. So, okay, so new. Let's take a photograph of the bench, right? But now imagine that I go back five yards, and now I've got the bench, and I've got this beautiful tree with, which, like, with its branches hang over the, the bench. Ah, that's, is it a picture of the bench? It's still a picture of the bench, but that's like another photo. Now imagine I go back another hundred yards, and now I've got this beautiful hill, <laughs> and I've got the bench, and I've got the tree. Ah, that's still a picture of the bench, but that's a very different picture. Now imagine I go back another bunch. Now I've got this incredible sunset <laughs> with this hill, with this tree, and the bench. It's still a picture of the bench, right? But now I've got all of this context which is a very different picture. So when the Gomorrah discusses things and they give you all the different opinions, that's the tree, that's the hill, that's the sunset. Now all of a sudden you've got context to understand what the discussion is about. You see, because, and on a very practical level, what would you have done otherwise? If a thousand years later I'm reading this thing, I would have said, oh yeah, yeah. you know why they're saying that's the answer? Because they didn't think about that. It's like, dummy, they thought about that, don't worry. Don't worry, they, 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 they discussed that like for quite a while. You know, it's not your idea, okay? So here, it's sort of like, you know, in math class, the teacher says, show your work. So they show the work. 